Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode 4 of series 13 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. In this series, we're taking a closer look at how having the right people data in place supports companies operating in fast-growing environments. My guest on this week's episode is Jignasa Grooms, Chief Human Resources Officer at Epicor Software, a 4,000-person global technology company. Jignasha has 20 years of experience in the IT industry, both in business and sales operations and human resources. And prior to joining Epicor in November 2016, spent eight years at Cisco, where in her last role she led HR for the America Sales Organization, the global marketing function, and the global sales and operations function, as well as the staffing discipline in support of all Cisco businesses and functions in Asia Pacific and Japan. Perhaps Chignesha's biggest achievement in her role at Epicor has been the development of the One Epicor Culture, which puts employees at the centre and is built on pillars including trust, agility, authenticity and empathy. It's a particularly impressive story, as you will hear, and one that has led to some significant outcomes for the business and the workforce. In our conversation, Jignasha and I discuss how Epicor is using and measuring the success of using AI in the recruitment process. We look at what HR can learn from the pandemic and what it needs to do to continue experimenting and not fall back into the old way of doing things. We look at how to build and develop a culture in a company that is growing organically and by acquisition. And we look at how to measure the business impacts of culture and connect the dots between customer experience and employee experience. And finally, we look at how having the right people data in place supports a business operating in a fast-paced environment. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in culture and leading HR in a global organisation. So that's business leaders, CHROs, and anyone in a people analytics, culture, employee experience, or HR business partner role. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ChartHop. ChartHop is an org management platform that helps companies turn their business strategy into their people strategy. With ChartHop, you can easily integrate all your HR systems, everything from Bamboo to ADP to Workday, to build dynamic views of your company through a visually rich org chart, robust people analytics, and streamlined headcount planning. ChartHop aligns managers, finance, and HR teams all in one place. No spreadsheets needed. Peloton, MongoDB, Postman, and other leading companies plan their orgs with ChartHop, and you can too. Head to charthop.com forward slash digital HR to learn how HR leaders are leveraging ChartHop. That's charthop.com forward slash digital HR. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Jignasha Grooms, Chief Human Resources Officer, Epicor, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. It's great to have you on the show, Jig. Can you give us listeners a brief introduction to your background and your role at Epicor? Absolutely, David. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm incredibly honored. Uh, so my name is Jignasha Grooms, and I have been at Epicor Software for about four and a half years as the Chief HR Officer. And I love my role here. We are a software company that provides, as we say, uh, we're the essential partner to essential businesses. And we work primarily in the small, medium uh, business space. And you'll recognize some of our customers as Ace Hardwares, the Chicago Bulls, Red Bull Racing, London Taxi, 
uh, just some great brands all over the world. And our hardware and software solutions actually allow our employees and our customers to be fully in the cloud with a SaaS-based model that really serves everything from point of sale to how you manage inventory. Uh, we focus primarily on manufacturing, distribution, retail, and auto. And uh, we do it with 4,000 employees spread right across 31 countries. A uh, little bit about me. Uh, right before I was at Epicor, I was at Cisco Systems for almost eight and a half years. And I've loved the journey. Over the course of my life and my career, I've had the chance to live, work, and play on three different continents. I consider studying play, David. So I included that. Uh, and just, I think, bring a pretty global background and am happily based out of Austin, Texas. And I can see the sun shining in the background there as well. Yeah. So very nice. Um, so, I mean, obviously, you've been at Epicor for, for four and a half years and 4,000 employees. You know, Cisco is around 75,000 people, I think, were, certainly was around the time you were there. You know, what would you say your top learnings have been about the differences in getting work done between a large company and a, and a, and a smaller company like Epicor? I would tell you that um, each of our roles provides us a little bit more of a building block on our foundational knowledge. And what I brought from Cisco was my people first approach. I think the culture at Cisco really supports that and really supports making sure that our employees are at the center of our business value proposition. So that's some of the learning that I brought from Cisco, as well as the global mindset and how to really build a company culture that aligns with business values and business objectives. Uh, to do that because when I got to Epicor, there wasn't a lot of foundational work already laid for the people strategy. So I had a great time not only building it, but because we are so much smaller, David, I was able to implement it with agility, you know, obviously drive a lot of change management, but we had a great group of employees that, uh, while they weren't sure at first, understood the benefits of it and then really adapted to what we were doing. So I think that's been the biggest difference for me in that in a company of 4,000 people, you can act with a lot more agility than you normally could. And I think the key to driving that agility is twofold. One is trust. You have to build trust all across your employee base, no matter where people sit, no matter what job they do, whether they've been with us for four days or 40 years. So I think building that deep, professional and personal trust with our employees helped. And then the second thing I would say is alignment, you know, making sure that our employees really understand how what they do aligns to our overarching corporate and business objectives and how they're part of the engine that really drives up for success. So I think, I think that has been just not only fun, but quantitatively fulfilling for me in this role. I know from when we when we sort of prepared a couple of weeks ago, um, you talked about how you're using AI specifically um, in the selection process at Epicor. Love to hear a little bit more about that because it's a bit of a buzzword in the in the space, as you know, at the moment. So it's, it's always good to hear people are actually actually using it. Yeah. And, you know, I love this conversation. So you're going to see me talking with my hands a lot when we get to AI. Uh, and I'm really proud to tell you that we implemented AI in HR over three years ago at Epicor. So um, let me give you a specific example. Our head of global staffing, Shane Hicks, sits out of Bracknell, UK. And that's important for you to know because I do believe that if you want to have a global mindset, you have to have an employee base that reflects it. 
But equally important is that our two largest locations are in Monterrey, Mexico, and Bangalore, India. Both places with great talent, but also war on talent, right? So um, when Shane and I started partnering very closely together after I joined Epicor, I asked him what one of his biggest issues was. And he said, you know, Jake, for every software engineer job I put out there for Bangalore or Monterrey, I get over 600 resumes. And there is no way that we will build a staffing organization to really support that. So we started doing our research and really got, uh, I think because we're curious and because we want to be innovative, we really got lucky as well, right? So it was right time, right product, right conversation. And we were able to implement AI in our staffing process. And we asked this question, not just in staffing, but across HR, and it just made the most sense there. So we were able to leverage an AI platform that we brought in that was an add-on to our staffing platform, to our ATS, as we like to call it in the HR lingo. And um, that AI allowed us to take those 600 plus resumes coming in for every job and to really distill them to maybe the top 50 to 100. Then our recruiters who are well-trained, both from an HR perspective, but also from a technical perspective, because we hire a lot of technical talent, we're then able to distill it down to the top 20 to 30 and give it to the hiring managers. Then the hiring managers iterated on that, David. And so they said, these 10 look really good and here's why. And I don't like the rest of these. And then AI and artificial intelligence, as, as you all and as we all know it, would actually be able to iterate that. And we've gotten that process to be so crisp over the last three years that we've made, I think now over 200 hires using AI, especially in places like Bangalore and Monterrey, where time is of the essence, often candidates, the best ones get multiple offers, and where we wanted to just create a really great candidate experience. Now, let me tell you some of the other things that I think will delight Right. Over the last 12 months, the DE&I conversation has become a really important topic. And it's very near and dear to my heart because I am an accidental HR person. But when I started my HR career 16 years ago, my first role was in DE&I. That's what we called it back then, diversity and inclusion. I love the E. I think it should have always been DE&I. But we noticed that we were trying to help our hiring managers. And quite frankly, all of our employees manage their unconscious biases. Because we all have them. You know, people often say, oh, Jake, you may you may not have very many because you've been doing this so long. And I said, no, we all have them. I have very clear conscious and unconscious biases. So we're now leveraging AI to take some of those unconscious biases out of the candidate pipeline. And it's made a huge difference, both from a candidate experience, but also from a hiring manager experience. And then what we do is we track any of our hires through AI. So then we track to see how their onboarding goes. If they're quota carrying, what was their time to quota attainment? If they're on the product development side, what was their time to productivity? Because we can count you know, lines of code written, bugs fixed. And then we see how their quarterly checkpoints go and what their annual performance ratings are. So it's a really great virtuous cycle where we take a lot of the subjectivity uh, out of the process and add in both what I call um, just efficiency, effectiveness, but also objectivity and a way to quantitatively measure how the talent does through the full life cycle. And I guess you're able to measure those hires that have come through an AI process versus those hires that came through a purely manual process and see 
the difference in maybe, as you said, time to productivity, for example? Yes. So because we're able to track our candidates that come through the AI process versus other processes, and we have great other processes. So let me tell you about some of them, right? Some of them are just employee referrals. We are very big on that. And we actually do a pretty hefty uh, employee referral bonus after the employee has been with us for 90 days, because it's important to make sure that they were a good hire, right? But the reason it works is because we, we compared to market, have lower voluntary attrition. So that's another way to track an employee. And the third way is internal mobility. And I know as you and I continue our conversation, David, you'll hear me get equally excited about that, but I'm a huge believer in internal mobility. And I think it is so important for companies to invest in growing the talent they brought on. So we're able to track it several different ways. And that's what helps us differentiate how our employees that came through the AI process are doing relative to employee referrals or internal mobility. Really good stuff. I, I know we'll end up talking about that 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 more, I think, as well. So um, let's dig in a bit, bit more to the agility bit, because I, I love that. And we'll, we'll definitely come back to the internal mobility part again as well later. You know, let's be honest, the last year, we're both, we're both sitting in our respective homes at the moment. You know, organisations have had the opportunity, or some will call it a forced opportunity, I guess, to, to pilot the future of work. Um, looking forward, what will you do and, and, and what do you believe HR as a whole will do to, to continue this kind of process of experimentation and not simply fall back into the old way of doing things? Yeah. And if I may, David, I'm going to answer you in reverse order. So um, I think for all of us that are HR practitioners, uh, there are many adjectives we can use for the last 12 to 14 months. I actually started the journey in January of last year because we have employees in China. Right. And I would say it's been exciting. It's been exhausting. It's been exhilarating. It's it's been full of anxiety to all of those words. And I didn't mean to use so many A words, but I think for HR as a whole, it's done several things. One is as HR practitioners, it's allowed us, as you said already, to pilot the future of work. But I think it's also put HR, if you weren't already there in your organization, right at the leadership table on the right-hand side of the CEO, right? And I would tell you that I have had the very good fortune of working at companies where I've always felt like I've had a seat at that table, right? And I think it's part of the company culture, the one I come from and the one I'm at right now, and even the ones before that, right? So I think for HR um, in general, it's really forced us to think about how we drive employee engagement in a virtually matrix environment. You know, we all love those buzzwords, people. All of us used to talk about virtual matrix environments. Well, hey, guess what? We actually got to fully live in it. And it was a little bit like watching Keanu Reeves and the Matrix dodge bullets, right? Because you just didn't know what was coming at you. Um, so I think that's something that HR has, all HR practitioners have had to adapt to. The second thing I would tell you is that it's been a great opportunity if you've been in HR to really be the driving force in your company around business continuity and business productivity. So I will give you an Epicor example now, which is that in 2020, which should have been one of our hardest years, because we were able to pivot with agility, back to my other favorite A word, we actually had one of our best years ever. We had the best July from a revenue perspective that we had in our 40-year history we were able to actually do promotions, merit increases, and give out bonuses of over 100%, 
all while making sure that our employee engagement scores remained high, both through external measures like Glassdoor, but also through our internal employee engagement survey, right? Now, the best part for me as an HR practitioner was that it also allowed me to really shine a spotlight on health and well-being. And I think this is where if you're an HR practitioner, it was your moment to shine because so many of us are wired to be empathetic just by a function of the job we chose, but it really came out. And if you did it in ways that were authentic, employees really resonated with it. As an example, at Epicor, all of us that report into the CEO and our CEO did 10 to 15 second video clips that we pulled together, almost like in a Brady Bunch-like format around what we were doing to to stay healthy and balanced and sometimes just sane. And we were really authentic and vulnerable, you know, and, and that gave our employees permission to talk about it. We offered up more mental health resources than we normally would. And we tried to do it globally as much as possible. We were hoping that um, COVID would really take some of the stigma away from it culturally in certain parts of the world and allow our employees to say, it's been hard. I wasn't used to sharing an 800 square foot space with three of my family members, all of us trying to work and go to school. And here's why it's been hard and I need someone to talk to. So I think from an HR perspective, David, all of those wonderful opportunities have been brought to the forefront. And now we as HR practitioners get to just run with it because this is where we've been headed for so long. You know, it's again, the you know, we've talked about buzzwords, but work-life balance. What great three words that none of us ever accomplished, right? Well, we were forced to do it. So I, I told you from an HR perspective now, and I weaved in some of the Epicor examples. Now, let me tell you personally, you know, for people like us, uh, and if those of you that are looking at me and are smiling, you can clearly see that I'm pretty energetic and a little type A. It's hard not to be 24-7. So for me personally, um, COVID gave me the chance to actually really draw those boundaries and lead by example. You know, these are words that I think all people who are in managerial roles should consider, which is lead by example. So I, by design, would shut down at 6 p.m. Central time. My boss, who, you know, sometimes was in Austin, but sometimes in California, because that's where his parents and in-laws are, knew I would shut down at 4 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Central, unless it was a burning issue. And I started cooking with my family. I started spending time with them in ways that I hadn't before. And my husband, who heads up sales for a company in a totally different industry, was not sure how it would work with him being home so much, right? Because he's very used to being on the road. So I think it's important personally to adapt to the new normal in ways that are fulfilling. And I would tell you that I came out of 2020 a better cook, I think, um, you know, as much as in, in a very vulnerable moment, my husband and I were like, oh, oh my goodness, this is either going to be really good for our marriage or really bad. It turned out to be really good. And our 17-year-old who got stuck with us is actually going to have some cooking skills before he goes off to university. So I think, you know, all of the things I talked about from an HR practitioner perspective, from a company perspective and authenticity, so agility from an HR perspective, authenticity from a corporate perspective, and then just some of that empathy and self-care for yourself, I think those are all things we should carry forward. And I love what you're saying there. It's interesting. We had a, I, I spoke to Ariana Huffington and Donna Morris from the, your counterpart at Walmart, I guess, a few weeks yeah. ago. And, um, and they were talking about how it's so important that leaders set the example. 
Um, and exactly the same. I think Walmart have been doing, their leaders have been doing similar 15 sort of second, 10, 15 second clips. Um, and yeah. using that, showing the vulnerability of leaders, because it's been hard for all of us, you know. It, and it, it, as you said, it's almost giving employees permission then to to, to also be yeah. vulnerable and also share their, some of the challenges that they're facing as well. It's 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 so important yeah. in this world, this world what we're living in at the moment. So yeah, I really, really love that. Um, so so when you joined Epicor, you said you'd been a in there four and a half years you've mentioned you know one of your primary focuses was building that culture that permeated across the workforce you know for an organization that that grows as Epicor has through through mergers and acquisitions for example that can obviously be a challenge you know can you share some examples of of how you've built the culture in in what is a fast fast growing environment and maybe there might be a, you've touched a little bit on on how you've adapted that culture over the last year as well yeah, absolutely so um uh, you know, this, I think, is a really uh, timely and relevant topic, David, because much like DE&I, uh, corporate culture is becoming the conversation for lots of board meetings. Uh, so when I came into Epicor, what I realized was that we really didn't have an Epicor culture, mostly because we had grown inorganically. So we had gotten to almost a billion dollars. And when I came, it was about 3,500 employees fairly inorganically. And you could see it, you know, easy examples are employee signatures would say the person's name and then it would say Activant, a subsidiary of Epicor. Well, that wasn't true. We had fully acquired Activant, right? Or they wouldn't even put Epicor anywhere in their signature and keep, you know, the signature they had from the acquisition they came in from. So uh, I knew that we needed to do that. The other thing that was going on at Epicor is that we actually were really looking at global workforce strategy differently. And we had just done a lift and shift for our Bangalore office. And back when we started, it was 14 employees, but quickly grew to 100 by the time I got here, November 2016. And then now we're at over 525 employees in Bangalore. But what I could tell was that um, there wasn't a cohesive sentiment across our employee base that we were all one team. And as I like to say, we were all one Epicor. So I would hear when I did my listening tour in town halls, you know, back when we were all traveling all the time, I would hear employees say, well, I feel like the, all the jobs are going to those people over there in India or Mexico, or I can't believe you opened, you know, a support center in Budapest and you gave those people jobs that could have been ours. So there was a very much an us versus them mindset. And then last but not least, I actually took the time because one of my very first flights for Epicor was to India. And that is a very long flight from Austin, Texas. And there were seven, it was 27 hours, right? And of course, last minute, so I was in a middle seat. So I took the time to read our employee engagement feedback. And I had asked, the, my predecessor had already left and my seat had been empty for three months before I got there. So I had asked, I said, what do you do with this feedback that employees give you? You know, who reads it? Who actions it? And the answers from my peers were, well, you know, I mean, we kind of look at it sometimes, but it's usually the same. Well, I decided to read all 787 comments and it wasn't the same, but there were two or three big themes coming out. One was, I don't feel like I can meet my career potential at Epicor. I don't feel like this business is set up for success and longevity. And the third one, which was really shocking, was I don't trust the leadership team. I don't feel like this leadership team is interested in my um, growth and you know my success as much as they are in theirs. Pretty significant themes, right? And very bold. Uh, and so me being me, also being a little bit bold, 
I distilled all of that. And in December, I was at my first meeting with uh, my peers and our CEO, our then CEO. And I said, here's what's coming out. Here's what I think we need to do. But first and foremost, we need to create a one Apricore culture. Because until we get that and people feel like they're part of one company and their success is interdependent on each other, then we're not going to move the needle. The second thing we need to do is to create trust and, and language that supports everybody's growth. So when we have any employees that say anything negative, like those people over there, or why'd you get rid of my friend and give this person in Budapest my job? We as leaders need to immediately course correct that. And we need to become more authentic and accessible to the employees because there's clearly an ivory tower mindset. So we picked our three big ones and we started working on it. And it was hard to get a lot of our employees to adapt because they've been here for a long time. But David, the way we did it was through small and significant changes. So let me just walk you through two quick examples. One was really launching that top track, that narrative through our extended leadership team, all our VPs and above. So I started there and I said, you all need to start talking about it in every meeting, in every all hands you have, in every town hall you host. And if you're not comfortable, invite me and I'll do it. I mean, we, you know, at that point, we're 3,500 people. I'm like, this is not that big of a deal. The second thing we did was really started putting our set, our employees at the center of our business value proposition. And this has really been very important to me. And I think the most fulfilling thing is the last three years, that's been part of one of our corporate objectives, which is Epicor respects and values its employees and strives to be a great place to work. Not that we are, but strives to be, because that's authentic. We're getting there, right? But I started putting our employees at the center of our value proposition. Here's the one example I'll give you. The year I started, there were just a lot of natural disasters. You know, you, you hate that it's happening, but between, you know, floods in California and fires, um, in certain places, earthquakes, and then, you know, just droughts and floods in Texas. I said, you know what? We're not so big that we can't call and check in on every employee. So anytime there's a big natural disaster, we're going to make a list of all the employees that could potentially be impacted. And we're going to split up this list. And we're going to call everyone. And usually it was like 20 to 25 people per HR business partner, me included. And we started calling and it was at our first customer meeting. This, so remember, I started in November. April was when we had our big customer meeting. And we had this really nice happy hour for some of our tenured employees, you know, people that were celebrating 15, 20, 25 years. And um, after our CEO did a great toast and our now president, then CTO did a great toast, the, he said, does anybody else want to add anything? And one of our employees stood up, big, huge, six foot three male, you know, and he said, I want you all to know I've been at this company for 28 years. And never once in my career has someone called to check on me and my family. And I'm going to choke up when I tell you this, but he started tearing up, you know, and he's probably in his late 50s, early 60s. And he said, I want you to know how much that meant to me. And for that reason alone, I'll retire out of this. I love that. Because that's a true example. And I have goosebumps talking to you about it because that's who I want to be. That's who I want Epicor to be because it makes me proud to work at Epicor. And, and now that's become part of our DNA. You know, we do it every time and the employees now in a great way, expect it and still love it. And now our employees proactively, I even get emails saying, Jig, I want you to know that I'm, I'm good. We're safe. Don't worry about us in the store. Well, that's, that's, that's amazing. And, and as you said, it's that, you know, a lot of us come into HR because we are empathetic and that, that's a great example of actually showing that, you know, when people are facing, you know, as you said, a natural disaster that we, you know, they get a call. 
it's not a big thing for us for, for us to do in HR, but it, it means so much more to, to, to that that those individuals, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I, I think that's what it really means when you say you put your employees at the center of your business value proposition. Because the truth is, David, we are a PEO billion dollar company. Our benefits are not gonna look like uh, Google's and Amazon's or even my previous uh, employer, because I don't have the the how do I say the negotiating power of a company that has 70,000 plus people. But, you know, the total rewards of working at Epicor go beyond just your paycheck and your benefits. It's how you feel. Are you valued? Are you important? Do the customers recognize it? Do the leaders, does the leadership recognize it? And I think the other big thing is, you know, if you look at our Glassdoor ratings from October of 2016 to now, you'll see a huge swing up, you know, 20 to 30% increase in all three categories. Are we set up to be successful as a business? Um, you know, what do you think of the CEO? And would you refer a friend? And I think that quantitative data, which is completely object, well, unbiased, right? Because it's just employees. I'm very good about making sure we don't ask people to do that. But to me, that's really the true quantitative measure of whether I'm doing my job well. And, and Jake, what does, you know, how do you measure the business impact of this? What, what has been a huge uplift in culture by the sounds of it? So are you ready for this? Um, we, you're going to love this. So we've now had 15 quarters of meeting or beating our AOP. Our customer retention rate is at 95%. We have increased our SaaS offering by 130 plus percent. And um, we have been able to do it while having, now I don't want to jinx myself, so knock on wood, lower than benchmark voluntary attrition, actually having performance ratings and performance goals for over 95% of our employees in the system. And when I first came the first year, we we barely paid out bonuses. The last three years, we paid out bonuses at over 100%. Now, people will say, can you tie all of that back together? And I can say absolutely and quantitatively. Employee experience and customer experience are just two sides to the same coin. And we've watched as our employee engagement scores and our Glassdoor ratings have gone up, so have our customer satisfaction ratings, which are now over 92%, right? So I'm a fundamental believer that when you put your employees at the center of your business value proposition, they reflect it forward to your customers. And your customers then reflect it back with both staying with you as a customer and then being, being advocates for you. So we, you know, we just did a full brand um, refresh and in my um, ear, the CMO and his team did a magnificent, magnificent job of this. But what you'll see on there are customer stories. And I think that's what makes a difference, right? So I definitively feel like it's had business impact. What I haven't told you, David, is in addition to all this, in 2020, Epicor actually went through a full change of control event. So we were one of the three biggest software deals that happened in the private equity world globally last year. And one of the things that our current owners, CDNR, said is not only did they value, you know, I call it the three P's, right? People, product, P&L. And they said not only did they see huge value in all three, but they were really impressed by the management team. So we did a full lift and shift of the management team, which is great because it keeps then that alignment all the way up and down the value. But they said, they actually were incredibly impressed with the culture we've created and the growth we're seeing globally, right? Not just in the U.S. market where we've always been strong, U.S. and Canada, but we're starting to see that growth in our international markets too. 
So a significant quantitative business impact that's tangible and visible to both our investors, as well as our board, as well as our employees. And what I love is when the employees share in that success, I'm one of them, right? But it wouldn't feel good to get a great bonus if the rest of our employees weren't also getting to benefit. Yeah, and I think it's great because I think investors are definitely looking at, I, I hate the word human capital, but it's like they, they you tend to use it, but they are looking at human capital a lot more now, or, um, you know, when they're looking at investing in what companies to invest in and what companies not to invest in. And we've seen the moves by the, the Securities yeah. and Exchange Commission in the US as well recently. And I, I think it's it's going to come in more, you know, how you treat your people and, and, and the value of your, your human capital is going to have a big impact on some of the, you know, things that you went through last year. Yeah. Um, I can hit, I can see the passion, which is fantastic. Um, yeah. And it's, it's clear from the initiatives that we've talked through so far that you're focused on on showcasing this value quantitatively. You know, how is it, how important is it for HR to speak the language of the business? Because when I'm speaking to you, I, I feel like I'm speaking to a business person as well as an HR person. Yeah. And it's not always well, the case, but, but you know, with, yeah. with, with, with your uh, peers. But so how important is it? It's, it's critical. It's not optional. And I say that not just because I'm someone who came from the business into HR. So, you know, it, I'm pretty fluent in it because... I had done a lot of that work before I came into HR, but I tell my team this all the time. So if you were to ask my team, you know, um, what are we going to work on? And they said, we're not working on anything unless it adds business value. And what I tell my team is uh, we only have one job. Our job is to be in the service of the business's success. And then if I were to distill that all the way down to my direct reports, I would say, I only have one job. My one job is to be in the service of my direct reports success. And I think if you have that mindset and you speak the business language, it makes a difference. So as an example, David, when we decided um, three and a half years ago that we were really going to accelerate our SaaS play, uh, we rolled out training around uh, our products that are on the, you know, that are in the cloud, that are on a SaaS platform. And HR didn't get an exception. It was mandatory for everyone in HR to go through that training. Now, I made it fun where I would invite our cloud guru onto some of my calls, all hands calls, and say, give them a pop quiz. And the winner of the pop quiz gets a, you know, gets a gift, gets a prize, a fun monetary prize, you know. Um, but I do think that's important. And one of the biggest pieces of feedback that I get is that they're always so impressed with how well my team does um, when it comes to being able to serve them from a business perspective. You know, uh, that our recruiters actually sound technical, that our HR business partners understand how to really influence and deliver an org design plan that's aligned to what the business needs and, you know, not what the person needs. And I hear that from a compensation benefits, HR operations, HR tech. And I think it's absolutely critical. I don't think it's any longer optional for HR practitioners to stay in our little bubble. We have to first lead with what does the business need? Then how do we distill that into driving alignment amongst the employee base? Then how do we distill that even further to making sure our managers have the muscle they need to continue to drive that alignment? And then you take it down even down to the individual level and say, what do each of our individual need? What do each of our individual employees need to get their um, development and business growth needs met. And yeah, because we hear, I hear from, you know, a lot 
you know, talk about what you know what the business and HR as though they're two separate entities. So HR is part of the business, and that's that's clear from 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 what you're saying there. You know, so a little bit more about how you work with your team. How do you encourage your team to think not just about running the business but changing the business? So you just hit on my two favorite acronyms, RTB and CTB. Um, and I think both of those are equally valued, by the way. So I'm very clear, and I've been talking about them for, for years, and I didn't know that you would bring up that exact same verbiage, but I love that verbiage because I think running the business adds just as much value as changing. So on the run the business side, where I focus is on efficiency and effectiveness. As an example, when I got to Epicor, we had like, 13 different HR systems. And I said, why? There's no way to get any good BI or BA out of this. Forget the predictive analytics part. I can't even get clean data, right? And by the way, my friends in sales will tell you the same thing from a salesforce.com perspective or whatever CRM they're using, right? So, you know, there's never going to be a tool that's perfect, but how we leverage the tools and how we utilize them is important. So on the run the business side, We've really focused, David, on efficiency and effectiveness. So we've simplified our HRIS. We've actually added a chatbot um, through MS Teams so that we can free up our teams, our HR team members, from having to answer basic questions like, uh, I want to process you know, an out-of-cycle salary increase, or I have an employee that resigned, what should I do? Or I have an employee that's starting virtually, what should I do? They can now use the chatbot feature for that. I mentioned that. AI and in staffing already. Then on the run the business side, all this time we free up, what I always tell my team, my other three favorite words is simplify, standardize, and communicate. And you know, it probably comes from my ops background. I'm a Six Sigma green belt. I love operations. Like how can you uh, be solution forward and keep it simple, 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 and standardized. And, you know, when I first came, I used to get a lot of pushback and they would say, that's not possible globally. We're all too different. I said, no, I'm going to tell you that my true definition of inclusion is that we're actually all way more alike than we are different. You know, I bet you, David, if you and I had a chance to have a coffee or a cocktail, we'd find all of our similarities. And it doesn't mean that you're not unique and I'm not unique because I do believe in a one size fits one employee experience. But when it comes to how we operational operationalize HR, I think standardizing where you can is really important. So we've drawn those distinctions. So on the run the business side, we measure efficiency and effectiveness, including utilization, right? On the change the business side, what we measure is impact, business impact. And, and here's how we measure it. Let me give you a really simple example. We have a pretty robust sales and anybody who's quota carrying or quota influencing gets their onboarding done in a certain way. And it was a key priority. Now we've gotten to where that's become nicely settled and we're now onboarding everyone. But we actually measure time to quota attain. Change the business. You want to drive business results? Measure what matters, which is top line growth. Then tie it back to your HR initiative, which was sales and field onboarding, and then measure it. Here's when we trained you. When did you get your first deal in the books? How did we recognize that first deal? And then how are you doing around quota attainment? Because here's the here's the truth, David. When people come in on a sales comp plan, if they're making or overachieving on their numbers, they're more likely to stay. And oh, by the way, if they make their money their first year, then not only do I have better chance of retaining that talent, 
but I have a better chance of helping Epicor meet its corporate objectives because I've gotten this person to productivity faster, right? So that's an easy example. I can give you a million of them. Well, maybe not a million, but at least 10 to 15, but that's one really easy example of change the business world that HR practitioners can do that you can tie back and articulate to your C-suite and your board. And I think one of the other examples that you shared uh, on our previous call was how your team worked on a, an acquisition documentation yes. that went beyond a traditional HR playbook. It'd be great to hear a little bit about that as well, if, you, if, if you'd like yes. to share that. Absolutely. So I, and not only do I love what this team has done, but it's become so beloved that our CEO has shared it with the entire C-suite and said, this is what we use, right? So, um, and we've touched on a lot of this, so I'll give you the slightly shorter version, but our growth plan is both organic and inorganic. On the organic side, we'll focus on cloud migration and SaaS acceleration. On the inorganic side, we focus on, you know, significantly sized uh, acquisitions to tuck-ins. But regardless of what size the acquisition is, you really want to make sure that the integration plan is very robust. And when when I asked my team to build this, because what I realized is that there were all these like random handoffs, but very much in silos, right? So here's the finance one and the HR one and the IT one and the product one. And I said, no, we HR are going to take lead and build one acquisition integration playbook that has all of these pieces in there. And once we pulled it together, what we realized was the same exact thing as the example I gave you around field onboarding, right? Which is the faster that we can integrate this acquisition without, you know, I always tell my team, please do not use the words mandatory or, you know, absolutely required. Because when was the last time you like someone shoving something down your throat? I think we all have a pretty visceral reaction to that, right? So I said, you have to sell this. You're not going to shove it. You're going to sell it. And you want to sell it so that they're excited about being part of the one app of four team. And so we really switched it up about two years ago, David, and same, just like the other example I gave you, what we measure is business continuity. What we measure is from the talent assessment work we did, how much of them were we able to retain? How many are excelling? How many have been promoted, et cetera? So this acquisition integration playbook goes from Everything from building the data room all the way to their first day as Epicureans and how we show up. And as a simple example, um, several of us on the executive leadership team, CEO directs, actually show up for the very first day in person. Now, we haven't done one for obvious reasons in the last 12 months. And if we had, we would have had to do it remotely. But before that, we would actually show up in person and we would walk that entire employee base through everything from how will their benefits work to who are we culturally. But the first slide we lead with whenever we do that, David, is just pictures. Like if I were to show it to you, you know, the last one, I showed up with the CFO and our senior vice president of product development. And the first slide was us with our dogs and cats and kids and on vacation and holding a glass of wine or a bottle of beer or coffee, you know, in the reason why you do that is because it goes back to where I started this conversation with you, which is if you want a strong culture and if you want your employees to want to adapt and align, start with building trust. And building trust starts with being human and having those honest, upfront, forthright conversations in that same meeting, because we knew everybody was wondering, like, is my job going to be saved? Am I going to be impacted? We 
we actually, once we got done with the personal introduction, said, before we share anything else, we want you to know that only two jobs will be impacted. And we wanted to make sure that we were sensitive to those two people. So we had conversations with both of them before the town hall. And you could just physically feel the entire room going, it, it just, you know, took all that angst out. And then they asked questions that I don't think they would have otherwise asked. And let me tell you about what these businesses have done. One of them delivered a seven-figure deal within 90 days of being part of our portfolio. And the other one has met or beaten its forecasting targets every quarter for the last five quarters now. Um, six quarters, because we just finished Q2 of FY21. And, uh, and I'm actually headed there next week because I'm vaccinated. So I'm starting to visit some of our sites again. Oh, great. But it makes a difference and, and it drives business continuity. And, you know, we could spend a whole hour going through a playbook like that. But having that playbook and having it be more than just the people piece and really tying all those pieces together and the timeline with which you implement will make the biggest difference around business continuity because we've had a failure too for exactly that reason. Well, it's great. And I love the way how you sort of, you know, draw the comparisons with onboarding because I guess you're effectively instead of onboarding, you know, some new hires, you're onboarding people coming from another from an acquisition. So I think that's really important. Um, we've got penultimate question because I know we've, we've, we're, we're sort of running out of time, but I really want to dig into this a little bit more, Jig. You know, you talked about how you quantitatively understand the relationship between customer experience and employee experience. So I think it's so important, so powerful. And that you present these insights next to each other at, at board meetings, I understand. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so I have a peer who runs uh, global support. And so he is to customer experience what I am to employee experience. And uh, when he started at Epicor, so um, since I've joined Epicor, we've actually done, while we have really high tenured employees, we've really switched out a lot of the leadership at the very top. You know, um, one of my peers was here before me, but everyone, including the CEO, were um, brought in after me. And one of the things that Jason and I do, who's our head of global support, is that we actually meet with customer advisory boards. And we've actually started with uh, partner advisory boards that we're pretty new to it. We don't have a large partner play. But as we build one specifically in international, I think it's important. So uh, Jason and I feel like another opportunity, as you said earlier, David, to lead by example, to lead from the front. So Jason and I twice a year meet with customer advisory boards. In addition to that, pre-COVID, uh, and when it permitted, if we were having a conference for our specific vertical, like distribution or manufacturing or retail, we would actually go up and present at those and then host panel discussions. So the conversations that we have with customers are very aligned with the way we solicit feedback and input from our employees. And just like I joined Jason for the customer conversations, he then joins me for some of the employee conversations. And we lead with that. So whether we're on the big stage during Insights, which is like a two to 3,000 person event for us, which sounds small, but for a company our size, it's our big customer event. We talk about we talk about how we're the two sides to the same coin. And the other thing that's happened, David, because we proactively discuss it with our customers is we've now started asking our customers, hey, we're going to do this you know, conference or meeting for you all. What would you like to talk about? And 99.9% .9 of the time, their top three includes talent. And what's become really fun 
And of course, it makes me feel good is that um, because we have such great customers and I told you we have a over 90 percent customer retention rate more often than not. Now they'll say, well, can Jake please come and share some of the best practices or can you share some of these tools? And I think that's how you really make sure that those two are tied together, because remember, we're in the small and medium business space. So while we may sound small compared to the Amazon and the Googles and the Oracles, we're actually pretty big compared to some of our customers. And so I think that's how it's become a really positive symbiotic relationship where our customers feel like they can count on us for best practices. And we did that. COVID's a great example. So let's go back to where we started. A lot of them needed to know how they would build preparedness plans for employees, how they would communicate. If they had to go to work, if they had to go virtual, how would they do that? And while my colleagues were helping them with how to leverage their software to do that where they could, especially on the retail side, I was helping them on the employee side and not just me personally, but a lot of our HR business partners. And so I think that's how you tie the customer experience and the employee experience together. And here's the best part. When everybody knows it and they're all talking about it, then everybody feels really proud of it, right? So now all of a sudden we have employees who are proud to work in Apple and proud to support this customer. We have customers who are proud to have our software and and some of them like Ace Hardware had their best year in history because they overnight became an essential business, right? And so they felt good about that. We didn't always get it right. So let me be forthright and tell you that, you know, while we always hope that our products scale to our customer needs, this was a very unprecedented year. And there were times where we got it wrong. But I think the one thing everybody would tell you, employees and customers, is we came at everything with our best intent to support their success. And back to that wonderful A word that you and I love, we did it with agility. Great. So the A word is agility. The B word is benchmarking. And the C word is compassion. And we're going to finish with the D word. Which... put that together, it becomes a really simple. What do you think the D word is? Well, we're going to finish with D word, which is data. So uh, so you've, tied, you've teed that up absolutely perfectly, Jim. So it's the last question to, to, to finish. And this is a question we're asking all the guests in this series. How does having the right people data in place support a business operating in a fast-paced environment like, like Epicor's? Immensely important. And back to that other question you asked me about HR speaking business language, it's critical. So I would tell you that in my experience, every board meeting I have attended in the last four and a half years, as well as the whole change of control process I told you we went through, right? Selling a $5 million company is not a simple process, right? All of it hinged on people data and that people data was as critical as our customer data, the CRM piece you and I talked about, and that was as critical as our product roadmaps and the product data, right? So I would tell you that, and you know, I say this often, it's the three-legged stool that the business sits on, right? Um, and so that people data being clean and crisp and something that, back to our T word, Something that our investors and our buyers could trust made the whole process work better. And it's the same thing, um, not just in a change of control event, but just in the day-to-day running of the business, right? For example, on any given day, somebody on the board or my boss, the CEO, will say, Jake, what's our current headcount? What percentage of our employees have performance ratings? What percentage of our employees have quarterly checkpoints in place? What does our out-of-cycle budget look like? How are you and your peer, the CFO, accruing for bonuses? And while I'm not going to share all those numbers with you, David, because they're confidential, I can answer each and every single one of them. 
um, to the point where I can tell you in our 31 countries, what percentage of our employees have been utilizing our very safe, um, you know, back to office, return to office initiative, if they would like to, if local laws allow, and what percentage of our employees are actually saying that's become a really important part of their return to normal. Whereas what percentage of our employees are saying, no, I need more time because even though the office may be open at 25%, schools are not open and I have a nine-year-old, I have no place to send. So I think that kind of um, people analytics data, so we've done ABCD, right, data, uh, really make sure that you have the E word, which is excellent business reason. Fantastic. We've got up to E. We could probably get, keep going to Z, but I think we've run out of time. So, Jig, thank you so much for being a guest on the on the podcast. I've really enjoyed our, our discussion. Can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and, and follow you on social media? Absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me there. And if you'd like to just shoot me an email, it's jig.grooms at epicor.com. And I would love it. I think what all of you will find is that I'm pretty responsive, whether you reach out via LinkedIn or via email. And David, thank you so much. I mean, not only have I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. I'm really honored to be part of this conversation because I love knowing that you and so many others in the HR world are thinking about people as the competitive differentiator. And I think it's making our people feel the that very important sentiment you and I've discussed, which is value, personal value. And I appreciate it. Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jim. I've really, Jig, I've really enjoyed our discussion. And hopefully at some point in the future, yeah. we'll be in the same conference uh, uh, or maybe in, and, and uh, we can have a coffee together or something like that as well. That'd be great. I would love it. I would absolutely love it. And I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Likewise. Thank you very much, Jig. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics digital HR and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Jimmy Zhang, Head of People Strategy and Analytics at Vertex Pharmaceuticals on how he has set up a successful people analytics function in a company of 3,500 people. So don't miss that one. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.